Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 25. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no obvious divisions among you, but you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We live and we move and we have our being in a world where people are wrong. We experience the pain and brokenness that wrongness causes. And it would be so much easier to live with it if it were only people out there, other people who are wrong. But we experience people being wrong in our families. We experience people being wrong in church. We experience the pain and brokenness wrongness causes, even in our families, even in our church, and there's no way we can get away from it. But the problem is even worse than that. The wrongness isn't just a problem with other people. 
We ourselves are wrong sometimes. We can do the wrong thing. We can say the wrong thing. We can have wrong ideas and wrong opinions. There are even things we know that we know. And yet those things aren't so. And we've had the experience of learning that some of the things we were sure about, absolutely sure, just weren't so. Now, feeling the consequences of wrongness is a good thing. Several years ago, I read a story about a family that had two children. As the kids grew up, the parents discovered that their two kids felt no pain. Now, if you've experienced extreme pain or had to live with chronic pain, you'd think that condition would be a blessing. But it's not that simple. I remember when I was about four years old, we went to California for my grandfather's funeral. And just being that young, I don't remember all the details, but I remember for some reason, I reached my hand up in the kitchen and laid it down on the hot stove. Any of you imagine what I did right after that? I took my hand off the hot stove. Now again, can you imagine why I did that? I did it because it hurt. I felt pain. My hand needed treatment. But what would have happened to my hand if I felt no pain? Would it have been the case that my hand wasn't burned? Would it have been the case that, that my hand wasn't damaged because I didn't feel anything? Feeling pain, being aware of the hurt that's happening is a good thing, a necessary thing. It can tell us what we need to do and that we need to do something. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is dealing with something painful. The church is divided. This was a church Paul was intimately involved with. He was the one that had planted it. Each of the people there mattered to him. He couldn't just sit back and be indifferent. Well, it's your church. Do whatever you want to do. So we see here in chapter 1, the church there was divided into factions. The factions were based on personalities and people aligning with those personalities. Some people were saying, hey, I follow Paul. I'm with you, Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Cephas. But then some people said, I follow Christ. Who's Apollos? We see Apollos in, in Acts 18. He, he's there in Corinth. He's a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was, was the main intellectual city in Egypt. Apollos is described as a powerful Bible teacher. Apollos was surely worthy of admiration and emulation. That's Apollos. How about Cephas? Who's Cephas? Well, Cephas is the Aramaic version of Peter's name. Peter was one of Jesus' first disciples. And as we read the Gospels, we get the idea that Jesus was probably 
closest friends with Peter among them all. Peter was a great and powerful leader in the church. And then you notice Paul includes himself here also among those who was inspiring a faction. The problem he saw wasn't that people were respecting and honoring leaders. That's a good thing. The problem wasn't that people were following leaders other than himself. He thought that was fine. He saw it as a problem that even that people were centering on him instead of on Christ. But what about these people that said, hey, I follow Christ? I mean, that's where Paul ends up, right? We see it clearly in verse 13 and following. It's Jesus who is crucified for them. It's in Jesus' name, not Paul's name, that they were baptized. It's Jesus around whose life, death, and resurrection the whole church was built and organized. So what could possibly be wrong about this group that's saying, hey, we follow Christ? Well, I think the problem was that they were being over-spiritualized. They, they were separating themselves out as a faction against the others. They said, well, you, you listen to Apollos, you listen to Paul, you listen to Cephas, we only listen to Christ. Paul wanted to say leaders are important in the church. They're valuable. But they're just not what it's built on. And all of us who are in leadership, whatever our role, whatever our title, are subservient to and ordered under Christ. And as Paul responds to this brokenness in Corinth, we see that he was pained, he was hurt by the wrongfulness of the divisions in the church. And because he was pained, he took it upon himself to try to do something about it. People were doing the wrong thing. And he urged them to stop doing those wrong things. He pointed out what they were doing that was wrong. And he pointed the people toward Jesus. When we experience people being wrong, is that something we can do? Can we point out what they're doing wrong? Can we point them to Jesus? Well, sure, in theory. That's pretty straightforward. But in reality, many of us would rather do just about anything else. When we see a person doing something wrong, we want to avoid the conflict. So we just slink away. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. So we find somewhere else to go. It's probably one reason so many churches across the land are in decline now. It's fighting and conflict because people are wrong about something. And the fighting and the conflict wrongs in themselves cause people pain, so they just leave. But there's another reality here. When confronted with people who are wrong, some of us would leap at the opportunity to confront them. We have a real hunger to tell people they're wrong. Maybe we're thinking of Paul in terms of what we see in Galatians chapter 2. We see there that Paul confronted Peter to his face. And not just one-on-one, -on -one, but in front of the church. Maybe you've known people throughout the years who like getting up in other people's faces to correct them. Maybe you even aspire to be that kind of person. 
If you are or want to be that kind of person, here's something you need to know. Chances are people will want to avoid you like the plague. They don't want you or anyone else in their face. They don't want to be around you when, or anyone else when you're getting in other people's faces. If that's the way people are, why then did Paul get in Peter's face here in Galatians? Yeah, we need to know a little bit about the background. The situation that Paul is describing here is happening, happening in Antioch. Antioch is a city in, in what we would today call northwestern Syria. Antioch was the base of operations for Paul's missionary journeys. Antioch was a fast-growing church. Jews were coming to faith in Jesus. Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. They were both experiencing the reality of life in Christ together. They were living as the one body of Christ. Being in Christ was what determined their identity, their sense of self, not whether they were Jew or Gentile. But then about that time, some men came down to Antioch from Jerusalem. Up to that point, all the Christians had been eating together. The Jews had been eating with the Gentiles. The Gentiles had been eating with the Jews. Ah, that's what Christians did. If we read the Gospels and look at Jesus' ministry, they did an awful lot of eating together. It was important to them. And it was important in the broader culture. But these men come from Jerusalem. And they said that Jews should not be eating with Gentiles. Because Jews are righteous, Gentiles, well, they're sinners. Now, if the Gentile Christians were to become Jews first, they were to submit to circumcision, submit to kosher law, do all the stuff in the Torah, then it would probably be okay for Jewish Christians to eat with them. For these men from Jerusalem, it was the Gentileness of the Gentile believers that was determinative of their identity, not their shared faith in Christ. And the problem Paul's addressing here is that Peter listened to these guys from Jerusalem. Peter stopped eating with the Gentile Christians and would only eat with the Jewish Christians. That's the point at which Paul got up in Peter's face. Peter was wrong. Peter was acting like it was their ethnic status that determined their identity. Peter was acting like ethnic status was what determined who he could eat with and who would be righteous. Paul confronted Peter to his face because this was a gospel issue. Paul writes in Galatians 2.14 about this confrontation. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that's an important line, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel was what mattered. The truth of the gospel mattered. When Peter and the guys who came down from Jerusalem counted something else as more determinative of identity than faith in Christ, they were wrong. Their wrongness was dividing the church. Their wrongness could drive people away. Now, People are wrong sometimes. I'm wrong sometimes. Our wrongness, my wrongness, can divide the church. Our wrongness can drive people away. 
Our wrongness can give people false ideas about Jesus and the gospel. When we live or act or speak in ways that detract from or deny the truth of the gospel, we can drive people away from Jesus. But how did Jesus himself handle people who were wrong? We can see an example in Matthew 23. We see him here in Matthew 23 confronting people who were absolutely sure they were right. If we looked at their lives, we'd be impressed. They were people who took God seriously. They were people who took obeying God seriously. These Pharisees knew the Bible and made it central to their lives. If all we saw was their righteousness, if all we saw was their dedication to God, we'd want to be just like them, just like the Pharisees. But throughout this chapter, Jesus tells them they're wrong. Just one example in verse 11. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. These guys were righteous. These are good people. But their righteousness is their own a self-righteousness, and they're refusing to enter the kingdom Jesus is inaugurating. And in their opposition to Jesus, they're keeping other people from entering the kingdom. Now, Jesus goes on in this vein for most of the rest of the chapter, continually observing how these guys have a kind of righteousness, how these guys have an impressive form of goodness, But these guys were missing out on the power of God, missing out on what God is doing in their midst. These guys were wrong. And Jesus rebukes these guys because he loves them. And his heart is broken for them. We see this broken heart in verse 27, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, How I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus sees these people who were wrong. Jesus sees these people who are wrong, whose wrongness is adversely affecting other people. Jesus sees these people who are wrong and declares again that he is ready and willing to give his life for them. But they're not willing. Do you see why Jesus' heart was broken? Let's try another example of Jesus. This one in John chapter 8. Here we see a story where it turns out everybody is wrong. Well, everybody but Jesus. Some of the righteous guys, again the Pharisees, the righteous guys catch a woman in adultery. These righteous guys think that adultery is wrong. I mean, after all, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, right? You go to Exodus 20 and you read these Ten Commands from God and you find there, do not commit adultery. It's plain, it's obvious. Jesus doesn't question the wrongness of adultery. And the woman, she doesn't question the wrongness either. She doesn't offer any of the defenses that we might hear in our culture today. Oh, Jesus, I really loved him. Or if it's love, it can't be wrong, right? 
Everyone here knows that she's done wrong. Everyone here admits that adultery is wrong. They know that it is true that adultery is a bad thing. These guys, these righteous guys, bring the woman to Jesus. They point out to Jesus that this woman is guilty of adultery. They caught her in the very act. They point out to Jesus that the law, the Torah, the word of God says people like her should be stoned. Not just a little pebble, but stoned to death. And they want to trip Jesus up. They have an idea that Jesus is morally squishy. They have an idea that all, in all his talk about grace and love, Jesus will reject common morality, that Jesus will reject biblical morality. So trying to trip him up, they come to him, believing that they're giving him only two options. Jesus can agree with the law and affirm that she should be stoned. Or Jesus can disagree with the law and let her off the hook. They were convinced whichever of these two options Jesus chose, he'd be defeated. Some would stop following him. Some would reject him as an authoritative teacher. But like usual, Jesus doesn't follow their script. Jesus thought they were wrong. He says, okay, how about the one of you? You got this big crowd of righteous people here. How about the one of you that's without sin? You throw the first stone. Now these righteous guys, they knew they were righteous. But they also knew they weren't that righteous. And one by one, they all walked away. Soon it was only the woman, the woman caught in adultery, that is left standing there before Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask her for an explanation. Jesus doesn't ask her for a defense. Jesus doesn't even lecture her on how wrong she is. Now remember, everybody knew she was wrong. Jesus says instead, where are the people that condemn you? There was no one left. Well, there, there was one person still there. One person who was righteous. One person who, according to Jesus' criteria, could throw the first stone. You knew who that was, right? It was Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Seeing that all who wanted to condemn her had left, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. She was wrong. Yet having done wrong need not define her life. Jesus knew she was wrong, yet chose to offer her grace. This way of Jesus, this way of recognizing wrong as wrong, and yet offering grace rather than condemnation, makes no sense to the world. It's this way of Jesus that took him to the cross. It's this way of Jesus that's exemplified in his submitting to crucifixion in letting unrighteous people do that to him. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross, letting himself be wronged. It looks like pure foolishness. If we submitted to suffer at the hands of people who were wrong, we'd feel like utter fools. 
but Jesus submits to it. Jesus lets it happen to him. Now, don't get the idea that it's because he doesn't recognize wrong is wrong. And don't get the idea that he was powerless to do anything about it. Don't get the idea that Jesus couldn't have successfully stood against Herod's police, Pilate's executioners, or even all the legions of Rome. But what we see is Paul affirming in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So what do we do when people are wrong? Yeah, the first thing is a negative. Don't assume that we can find spaces and groups where no one is wrong. There's just too many ways to be wrong. If someone's not wrong today, guess what will probably happen tomorrow? Somebody will be wrong. This is a reality that I hold on to as I look at our own denominational divisions. Whatever happens, whatever group I end up aligned with, I'm going to be aligned with some people who are wrong. But I can't stop there. We have to hold on to the truth. Truth claims are not just an imposition of power intended to manipulate people. We need to let our commitment to truth be built on the centrality of Christ crucified. If we give up on the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, if we give up on the fact that Jesus died for our sins, if we give up on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, we lose all these things that matter. In holding on to the truth of the gospel, we take up the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And that's not an abstract truth or set of truths. It's not something that gives us merit for believing or asserting. And when we stand for this truth, we submit ourselves to truth before we impose it on others or submit others to it. If we only see where other people are wrong, we'll end up damaging the body. When we recognize our sin, our wrongness, true forgiveness, healing, and kingdom work can happen. I like what my former teacher Miroslav Volf said. He said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy, the person who has done wrong from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. So we're holding on to truth. We're submitting ourselves to truth. We also let our hearts be broken for the pain and hurt that their wrongness or even our own wrongness produces. If it's our wrongness, what do we do? We repent. If it's the wrongness of others, we love them through it. But what happens if all of this still doesn't fix things. If all this doesn't correct their wrongness, we entrust them to God, just as we've entrusted ourselves to God. God calls us to live as one body in Christ. Inside the church, we can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit who makes us one. Outside the church, we can witness to the reality of Jesus in our words and in our actions and show the world what it looks like when people who are sometimes wrong love each other. It's Jesus 
who will ultimately win people. Not our righteousness, not our rightness. It's Jesus. And we can choose to walk in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that the grace that you offer us in Christ is thoroughly sufficient for sinners like me, thoroughly sufficient for people who are wrong like I have been wrong and will be wrong. Today, Lord, we submit to your truth, the truth of the gospel. Help us to stand for it and live out of it. But as we stand in that truth and live out of it, let us never forget that it's it's the truth that's rooted in Christ crucified. Foolishness to the Greeks, weakness in the eyes of the world. Fill us with your spirit today. Teaching us afresh to love each other teaching us afresh how to deal with people when they're wrong, wherever they might be, to do it Jesus' way. Amen.